recently heard a remark that the difference between the U.S. and Africa is that the U.S. has competition while Africa has complexity. And certainly one reason for the complexity can be attributed to a lack of infrastructure. Kenine Nayabwala, the CEO of Kenyan logistics provider Bwala, understands this complexity. I can imagine how incredibly difficult it is to do last mile delivery when there are no street names and addresses in some areas of Nairobi. Navigation is a challenge. We don't have streets addresses, we don't have buildings addresses. That is in the neighborhoods where the last mile drops are supposed to take place. For Bwala, Kennedy has attempted a variety of interesting and alternative methods to make last mile delivery a little less complex in Kenya. I proposed this to Google to name streets in Nairobi. They have all these uh, addresses and all these landmarks within the various suburbs, but they do not have various streets. They say that entrepreneurship is like jumping off a cliff and building a plane on the way down. And in Africa, if you want to do last mile delivery, you may literally be naming the roads as you go. In this episode of The Flip, we talk to entrepreneurs around the continent who are tasked with the challenge of profitably building the infrastructure or making the market as a necessary activity for startup success. And key to these infrastructure building or market making efforts is the business model and making sure that the numbers work out. These investments into a startup's value chain or a focus on many revenue streams may appear unnecessary or unfocused to the outside world, though it may just be exactly what's needed to build a sustainable business in Africa. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. In today's episode, we talk about business models and sustainably building infrastructure within the model. If we start with the assumption, which is a tenant of Silicon Valley style entrepreneurship, that it's best to start with one business vertical or revenue stream at a time. It's this strategy that best allows entrepreneurs to experiment in a focused and controlled manner before scaling to other markets or revenue streams. On the other hand, it seems that African businesses don't always have that luxury, due either to a lack of infrastructure, market size, or other issues such as political or economic risk. So how are entrepreneurs in Africa solving problems and building sustainable businesses? And what does that look like from a strategy and business model perspective? My name is Joanna Bixel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of a startup called Kasha. Kasha is an amazing social enterprise currently operating in Rwanda and Kenya. Kasha is an e-commerce company for women's health and personal care in East Africa. And we are striving to be the largest platform for women's health and personal care in the world, specifically optimized for emerging markets. The company is focused on helping women gain access to health products that may be stigmatized in more traditional and conservative communities, and especially in rural markets. The reason Kasha started was when you think about it, there's many products women need throughout their their lives. And many products related to their bodies and their health is actually quite highly stigmatized. So women actually have a hard time getting the products they need, whether that's menstrual care or contraceptives or other things for intimate health. The idea for Kasha started during Joanna's time with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where the foundation would pursue a distribution model via local clinics. However, over time, Joanna recognized the problem with how charities are setting their goals and determining what specific problems they should be aiming to solve. So there, I focused on technology in global development. 
The area I worked the most on was supply chain. And very often we'd be in very rural areas, whether that's Siberia or Kenya or Ethiopia or various other areas. And it was quite common that you know, these clinics would say, you know, we actually don't have a stock problem related to family planning. There's a huge difference between getting contraceptives as, you know, a young woman in a traditional society versus getting like a vaccine or a malaria medication. It's highly stigmatized. And our goal was to ensure there's no stockouts. And really, if we solve this goal, we would not actually be helping women get these really impactful products on their lives. So Joanna went out to try and help solve this problem. I actually tried to look for a job where this someone was doing this. I'm like, someone's got to do this. And it didn't exist, which was insane. And then when the business model came together, I was like, how does this not exist? And that's basically how, the, how it started. Kasha was really brought about by really looking at that challenge and thinking, you know, there's an opportunity here to really flip this upside down and, and make this really driven with an experience that really is optimized for women. Now, Joanna brought up pretty early in our conversation the importance of business model, which is guided in part by past experiences and her view on commercial business versus nonprofit. I feel very strongly about that. I did spend a few years working at a, a donor, and I've seen nonprofits literally be forced to change their entire strategy because the donor changed their strategy. And, you know, I'm too stubborn for this type of stuff. I'm not, and so from the beginning, you know, I was never going to start a nonprofit. It's just not my way of operating, I suppose. There's a difference between NGOs where, you know, you're giving products away for free, but I also very much believe in the value of business. And if, you know, just the data there, if someone's spending the little money they have to buy something of value and they keep coming back, you're providing something of value. And I think that that's really important. For Joanna and Kasha, it all started with business model, which is of a special importance for a business that's primarily focused on selling products for bottom of the pyramid consumers. In general, social businesses do not have straightforward business models. You have to be creative if you're selling products to you know, some of the poorest people in the world. For us, when you think about it, we are e-commerce and you know, we're selling products that have to be competitively priced. This will not work if we are more expensive than what people can get in stores in the traditional way. And on top of low margins, making matters more complicated... Some of the poorest people in the world are also very hard to reach, which means different customer acquisition strategies and customer experiences, depending on who they're selling to. One of the differences about Kasha is we do serve women of all socioeconomic levels in urban and rural areas. And so the way people order, the way we market, the way we deliver is different depending on, you know, what kind of customer segment type you fall into. And it's really about meeting our customers where they're at. In rural areas, in Rwanda especially, e-commerce is very new. We quickly became the largest e-commerce company by volume of orders there. And that means you actually have to teach people about e-commerce, which slows you down. But you can't just set up a Shopify site in an apartment and like, ta-da, e-commerce is booming. There's a lot of offline as well as online activities that you do. We have a Kasha agent network around the country. These are women, they live in these the communities. Some of them are community health workers and they are the face of Kasha. They help build trust, help people feel comfortable ordering online and knowing that no one will see what they're ordering. So there's a variety of ways, depending on the customer segment, where we've really tried to optimize for the experience. So how does Joanna look at Kasha's business? And how did they make the business model work in this environment? Unit economics is a key metric for us. 
And every time we deliver an order, we do not want to be losing money because as we scale, we scale <laughs> losing money if we are at negative unit economics. So for us, it's always the focus, especially when we enter into new regions, to get to positive unit economics. And on the very, very low income rural segment, the goal there is always to achieve positive unit economics. Even with that, you're just not going to get massively high margins there, right? They are pretty slim margins. That was why our uh, model was set up so that we serve both middle income and low income. Actually, 60% of our consumer revenue comes from middle income, mostly consumers, while the volume of orders, 80% of the actual orders come from low income. Social businesses have more of a complex business model. And for us, we're always having to look at the kind of distribution of where the revenue is coming from so that for a company as a whole, we are profitable and that each business unit is making money and breaking even, but not all of them are going to necessarily be able to pay for our engineers and our data scientists and those types of things. And unlike many e-commerce companies, Kasha also earns B2B revenue. So from the beginning, we realized we actually are building a platform of the most influential consumers on the continent. Women drive 80% of consumer purchases. They own the household. They are the primary decision makers when it comes to family health. Women are a target consumer for many, many pharma, FMCG, beauty companies that are looking to enter the market. And so for us, we are a platform where we have both B2B revenue in addition to our e-commerce, the B2C revenues. And while low-income consumers and rural may be low margin, you find that a lot of manufacturers actually are more interested in reaching them because they're kind of unreachable for them otherwise. And so we can still monetize that capability. Kasha has proven out a sustainable model that, regardless of their distribution of revenues, allows them to accomplish their goal of getting stigmatized products into the hands of rural and low-income women in East Africa. Kasha's model effectively addresses a market size challenge. Because of the slim margins of selling to rural and low-income women, they're tasked with selling to easier-to-reach and higher-margin customer segments, as well as to monetize manufacturer relationships. And Kasha, in building out an agent network, is also building infrastructure, which, as we'll see, is the other area of focus for African startups to determine how to make the model work for their business. Imagine London or New York City without the underground, without uh, the subway, without the ferries, and with you know 70% of the streets being unpaved or poorly paved, right? And then you have about 20 million people within 1,000 square kilometers of, of land trying to get around on a daily basis to conduct their business. It's an absolute nightmare. That's Adetayo Bamiduro, the co-founder and CEO of Nigerian transportation company Max.ng, which provides ride-hailing and last-mile delivery using motorcycle taxis, known in West Africa as Okadas. I spoke with Tayo and fellow co-founder, Max's chief growth officer, Chinadu Azodo, about the level of complexity they need to overcome and the subsequent investments they need to make to not only build a sustainable business, but to disrupt and improve the difficult transportation situation in Africa's largest city, Lagos. Public transport system is fragmented. It's poorly organized. It's very informal. It's very you know, rough. The vehicles are old. A lot of the vehicles are 20, 30 years old. Add to that the fact that 
Lagos has about one million cars on the road. So it's traffic jams all the time. It's just so hard to move around. Add to that again, the fact that you have close to about half a million informal motorcycle taxi drivers who haven't gone through any formal training, who don't wear helmets. It's just a complete total madhouse. That's the context we're talking about here. But where many see chaos, Tayo and Chinadu see opportunity. What Max has done is to bring a little bit of sanity using technology, using training and using uh, mobile payments to organize that industry and make it safer, more accessible, and more affordable for commuters. And how has Max begun to bring sanity to Lagos? We launched a delivery service about three to four years ago now, and then we pivoted to a pure mobility platform that does both ride hailing and last mile delivery. Here, we immediately see a diversion from the typical Silicon Valley method of entrepreneurship. Rather than focus on one vertical at a time, the Max founders opted to spread their services out horizontally and focus more broadly on providing services to solve more general mobility challenges in Lagos. Max is building uh, technology infrastructure and financial services to bring uh, Africa's you know, mobility industry online. And the way we're doing that is we're providing asset-backed vehicle financing to drivers. We're providing driver training. Uh, we've built an e-hailing platform that connects drivers to commuters on demand. We're also providing other services like insurance and identity management and licensing to drivers. So it's a bunch of really important things we're doing because the the basic infrastructure needed for mobility doesn't exist in most parts of Africa today. The industry is still very informal and very fragmented at the same time. And that explains why you have you know, high accident rates, for example, in the two-wheel mobility space. So what Max has done is to build a couple of very critical supporting infrastructure to make transportation safe, affordable, and accessible in sub-Saharan Africa. Some of the things we've done, for example, are we've built transparent dynamic safety scoring system for drivers, driver academy that focuses on bringing on board high-quality drivers, implemented an infrastructure-slash-innovative approach that combines ride-hailing with financial services and mobile commerce. We're executing with a very strong partnership-driven approach. So we're working very closely with financial institutions, with governments, and also with vehicle manufacturers and payment companies to create all the elements needed to provide an app-based two- and three-wheel mobility service. Ride-hailing, last-mile delivery, financing, mobile payments, insurance, driver training, and safety. That's like six or seven businesses and innovations in one. What do Max's investors think about all of these verticals they've gotten into? There was a lot of explanation that had to be done to explain why we needed to sell health insurance to drivers, why we needed to not just do motorcycles, but why we needed to build a field operations team to provide support and all these other things. That's Chinadu. I think we've got to a point where they now they just get it and they trust that we're making the right decisions for the company because they see the numbers. But initially, there was a lot of, no, it doesn't make sense, don't do that. Oh, no, it doesn't make sense, don't do that. Oh, in America, we didn't do it this way. I think there's been some learning and some exchange of knowledge. And I think that's the great thing about having investors who believe in you as founders and as leaders in the organization. They believe in your ability to make the best decisions and are willing to give time to see how things work out. We're very lucky in that sense. I think a crucial thing that Chinadu just mentioned and that I hope isn't overlooked is that their investors trust them to make the right decisions, amongst other reasons, because they see the numbers. In other words, Max is building a business and gaining traction across all of these verticals and creating impact at all levels of their value chain in a viable and sustainable way. If you're trying to do sustainably, then it might make sense to, you know, come with a sensible amount of money, have that money available to tap into, 
but initially be lean, lean in the sense that, you know, we're going to take an approach of testing things, trying out and figure out what works, right? And then when you figure out what actually works, then you can spend a lot of money scaling that. If you don't figure out what works and just start to scale, you will finish spending the money and not have achieved the level of scale you're looking for. And if we think back to the quote on competition versus complexity, we can see how it's most beneficial for Max to take this sustainable approach. The real competition is the complexity of the problem itself. What we're seeing is that ultimately the biggest competition or the biggest threat to success or survival is actually figuring out how to operate as efficiently as possible internally rather than being obsessed about what you know other players are doing in the market. So ultimately, especially in a market like ours, you know, first mover is typically not necessarily an advantage. It's more about who provides the most value, right, to, to customers. Whoever figures out how to do that ultimately will win. And the impact of investing in infrastructure and sustainable growth? You know, when you think about like what the impact of this stuff is, on average, people spend five to six hours a day in traffic. That's one quarter of your life during the week, sitting in a vehicle, trying to get from one point to another. For the record, they're traveling less than 30 kilometers per average uh, most days. There's a lot of time for 30 to 60 kilometers. It's a lot of time. All we've been able to do with our platform is to essentially crash that from six hours to 30 to 45 minutes each way, which essentially means under two hours. For the drivers, coming to the market, the drivers on average made about 30,000 naira a month, which is $70 or something like that. We've been able to increase that four to five times to date. The average accident rate for motorcycle taxis, average death from motorcycle taxi accidents in Nigeria is one person dies on average, I think every 16 to 20 minutes. On the Mac platform, our accident rate is less than 0.1% and we have zero deaths on our platform. So there's market size and infrastructure challenges. What about modeling for risk? That too may cause African entrepreneurs to pursue multiple revenue streams or verticals simultaneously. And Eric Herzman, the Kenyan CEO of Brick and a founding partner of the venture capital firm Savannah Fund, he has a name for that. I think what you're speaking to is something that's well known across Africa, which is we're parallel entrepreneurs, which means that there's always like three things happening at one time, not just one business. And that's due to kind of risk mitigation. So if there's economic, political, some other business type of risk, you can mitigate that by having multiple streams of revenue as an entrepreneur or even as a business person. Brick is an Nairobi-based internet and connectivity company whose initial question was, why are we using hardware devices in Africa that are designed for the U.S. and Europe when the infrastructure is completely different? And I'll start with a little bit of history that Brick started as a hardware company trying to build the best routers and modems most ruggedized ones for the frontier markets. It was pretty quick after that we built and started shipping the first one that we realized we may be solving the wrong problem and that we shouldn't be trying to just build the best product for internet connectivity, but we should be trying to get people online. That's actually what the real goal is. Now Brick uses its hardware, leverages its hardware to provide solutions to get people online. So Moja is the brand of the product that is out there in the public. And Moja is, you know, a Wi-Fi hotspot that's in public spaces. So buses and barbershops and youth centers and marketplaces that anybody can jump on for free. And then what we do is how we monetize that is we, we sell either content caching, digital engagement, some type of computation service on the platform to businesses. And then a byproduct of that is free public Wi-Fi. All of this is made possible 
by a technology called the Superbrick. The Superbrick is actually the foundation layer for all we do. Highly ruggedized data center that we also use for our connectivity because it's got computation, it's got storage up to five terabytes, and it's got power and connectivity. The Mojo platform uses the Superbrick inside of transportation and fixed locations. Even some of the new R&D stuff that we've been working on in our labs around IoT, so our PicoBrick, speaks to the Superbrick over long range. And so we kind of use that as the base foundation for a lot of the services that we sell. Up to this point, all of Brick's products have been consumer-facing. But as parallel entrepreneurs, Eric and the Brick team are looking at other ways to leverage and monetize their technology. We're open to the idea of having our Superbrick be sold as an enterprise product. We've been using it ourselves. We haven't been selling it. So now we're thinking, okay, well, we've gotten to a point where it's hardened up enough. It's really useful. We can sell enterprise versions of this to bulk buyers. And from a strategy and decision-making process, I suspect the deliberation the Brick leadership team is going through is similar to the scenarios other parallel entrepreneurs are facing across the continent as well. What I think you see with the enterprise side is us doing exactly that. We're saying, okay, our core focus is building out the Mojo platform and building the user base on that. We're at half a million monthly active unique users today, um, and we want to push that to two million by the end of the year. Fantastic. We'll monetize that. We'll be kind of gross margin positive by Q1 next year. It should be all good. However, is there a point where we should, this is the strategic problems that you focus on as in leadership in these companies, right? Is we're saying, okay, is it too much of a focus problem if we take something that's already built and we firewall a team that works on like the enterprise version of the software, is that taking away too many resources from the core and, and being some type of distractive element? We're actually not fully decided on this yet, but we're considering having that available as part of a we're reorganizing how we do our business right now. And if we can reorganize that in a way that we feel like it won't disrupt the core part of the business, then we'll do it. But it is absolutely what you're saying about making sure that you have multiple streams of revenue and that you're iterating on and making sure that you have just more possibilities. Here's a crucial challenge. How do you determine the best strategy? Brick, after iteration and experimentation, is getting their core business firing on all cylinders. But now, do they pull resources away from their core business in order to pursue alternative revenue streams? There's no right or wrong answer. But these are questions that entrepreneurs on the continent may be tasked with trying to answer on a regular basis. What do you do? And how do you make the numbers work? Sometimes it may just take continued experimentation and iteration and doing less than you originally intended. Something that Jahil Oliver, CEO and founder of HelloTractor, has experienced. HelloTractor is a technology platform that farmers can use to rent tractors and that fleet owners use to manage their assets' location, fuel measurement, utilization, and more. It's really more of a CRM platform. We'll provide a tool to manage farmers and connect those farmers to tractor owners that are also using our technology to manage their fleets. Our business is really technology infrastructure to support service delivery in a marketplace that's wide open. Born and raised in a city in the U.S., I was also really interested in how Jahila is learning to solve for local problems in rural Nigeria. For me, going into Nigeria, my antenna was already up. I went in thinking, wow, I'm really ignorant to everything going on here. And so it allowed me to make changes pretty quickly based on the assumption that I knew nothing and should be there to learn first, innovate second. 
part of it too was um, naivete because you see the opportunity, you know, the challenges kind of academically, but you don't fully appreciate the depth of those challenges until you get there. From Hello Tractor's origins in 2013 to present day, they've come a long way through a series of innovations and pivots from initially selling IoT smart tractors to the software product they have currently that allows them to create impact profitably and at scale. Our initial product was a tractor with the technology. We took a design that was already in the market, did some small modifications, and then added our technology. We turned this low horsepower, single axle tractor into what we were calling a smart tractor. The technology is what kind of makes it a product. But building out a market requires so much more than just lines of code. But that's the product that you can sell into the marketplace once you put in that market building effort. So that was the role that we decided to play. So we pivoted away from selling the tractor in the beginning of 2018 to focus on just the technology and the business really skyrocketed from there. Today, through a network of third-party dealers and distributors, Hello Tractor can provide Nigerian farmers with tractors at greater scale. We're in a double-sided marketplace on the tractor side. We distribute through OEMs like John Deere and their dealers, which is John Deere's customer. And then on the on the farmer side, we distribute through people who aggregate farmers, right? And this could be outgrowers, input companies, fertilizer companies that are selling the farmers. But it could also just be these rural young people. And some of our best partners on the demand side are exactly just that. They're entrepreneurs. They see an opportunity. They're like, look, I got 500 farmers in my community willing and able to pay for inputs. And I'm willing to get my hands dirty. And we can open up a product offering to make sure they at least get the tractor services and build that out to other inputs as well. When you generate those bookings, you can generate that booking from those 50 farmers that you know that need the same tractor service at the same time in the same vicinity. So that booking comes in at economies of scale. Our technology will match that booking with the nearest tractor that's available using our technology, right, with the applicable implement, right? Because tractors can do so many different things. And when that pairing occurs, the tractor owner pays the entrepreneur a commission and we don't touch it. And it's done actually not to drive any revenue on our side directly, but we obviously need as many farmers on the platform to be relevant to the tractor side of the marketplace, which is where we make our money. With Hello Tractor making a market, they are not only putting more tractors in the hands of farmers, but creating financial opportunities for entrepreneurial-minded distributors throughout the country. And this is a vital point that for Hello Tractor, similar to Max, allows them to create greater impact at scale. However, unlike Max, Hello Tractor pivoted to become strictly a technology company because they had to make the numbers and the model work. GL determined that to create the most impact at scale, it was actually most beneficial for them not to go all the way down to the farmers, who are ultimately the direct users of the tractors. When we first started, we had this SMS booking platform. It took less than two months of that product in the market to realize all this stuff people are talking about SMS, S academic and development A stuff, it don't work. You need to build an app. And the app doesn't have to scale across, you know, 80 million people. But you do need maybe a thousand people that are power users of that application, aggregating demand on behalf of the thousand farmers in their community. And so you get that multiplier effect. From a funding perspective, they've received grants that can help build out their distributor network. And then, of course, the grants, which is generally a pass through, though. Ziggy is looking at building out a booking 
organization in South Africa. He's like, I got 10,000 farmers. These 10,000 farmers represent around a half a million dollars in booking commissions every year. But he needs to put some infrastructure in place to actually capture that opportunity. How do you get the capital to inject into Ziggy's business to get him up and going? What Hello Tractor would do is we would go out, we would use our partnerships with these development organizations, get a grant as a pass-through. We would help them get the grant. It would come in under Hello Tractor, but then it would just flow directly through to Ziggy as a sub-grantee to execute on these certain things. For Hello Tractor, they've made the strategic decision not to build the infrastructure, which would be a business model risk. Rather, they're raising money accordingly and passing those funds on to those in the value chain whose responsibility it becomes to build up the demand side of their marketplace. Ultimately, however, it hasn't always been an easy conversation when seeking donor-funded grants. I think we've been hurt because we don't go all the way down to the last mile. A lot of the people, like I was mentioning how we'll raise money for our partners. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, you're making money with John Deere. I'm like, well, that's business. You guys give grants. So we're going to take that grant and give it to somebody who is working at that last mile. And they're like, but we're giving a grant to you, so we want you to work at the last mile. I'm like, that's not possible. We're in multiple market. How could we possibly do that level of work, that level of engagement in all these different markets? The cost of customer acquisition is so expensive at that last mile level. It's best done by somebody who's already there. And Jahil had to be incredibly mindful of the impact on local relationships as well. And while, like, could you imagine, like, if we did that at any meaningful scale, our partners would be so skeptical of ever doing business with us. As they scale, HelloTractor's model dictates that they shouldn't go all the way down to the last mile. Yet invariably, HelloTractor is building infrastructure and creating impact, whether or not they go all the way down to the last mile. And as for their impact? If you get one person working a hectare, and the average plot size in Nigeria is about 1.1 hectare. So if it's one individual working that plot, it takes about a month to prepare the land for the season. You're literally bent over with a hoe, going row by row, digging up that concrete. And it's like, it's hard as concrete, that sort. But, you know, the unfortunate reality is most farmers start that work when the rains begin. So you miss about 30 days. And every day you plant late in a rain-fed system, you lose about a point in yield. So you've already lost 30% of your, your harvest just by planting late because you're doing it manually. A tractor knocks that same work out. One hectare, it'll be done in an hour. It's crazy. 30 days of work gets reduced down to an hour. So you get the yield that you would have lost from manual production. But then also it's cheaper. You know, that manual labor costs about five bucks a day. That's the rural wage rate in Nigeria. So that's $150 for the month. The tractor service costs $75 for land prep, roughly a little less. So you save 50% on your land prep costs. So you save, you yield more, you plant more efficiently, and you don't have to do as much work. Each week, my B-Mike Shio and I sit down to discuss what we learned from the insights shared by entrepreneurs around the continent. On the topic of business models, it appears to be without question that the entrepreneurs in Africa are having to solve for more complex problems and the result is that there is a necessity to invest in infrastructure or pursue multiple revenue streams or business verticals or geographies at the same time. We're essentially talking about two key business metrics here, total addressable market and customer acquisition costs. And I think it's important to understand the context, both in terms of where you're doing business and the stage of your business. 
which has implications for the strategy and decisions that businesses in Africa make and the impact the decisions have on these key metrics. And while this may be harder or more complex, it may also leave companies much better off in the long run, having built a moat and created a business that's much harder to compete with. That's what Shio and I were super interested in discussing further. Take a listen. When I think about the necessity for differing business models, I think about two things. Number one is market size. Question of if there is not a big enough market size for what you want to do, it almost necessitates being in multiple markets or having multiple revenue streams. The second thing I think about is if there is not the value chain or infrastructure for you to reach the market, then you have to create those infrastructure pieces along the value chain. And then you need to monetize across that because you can't just do it off your own. That's how a value chain works, right? Most people own a particular part of the value chain. And then over time, they integrate into different parts of it. And they do that. You don't do it until you have the market in one part of it. If I'm a a furniture store, unless I have a market that's buying my chairs, it makes no sense for me to vertically integrate into producing chairs. So that's often how it goes. But I think that what we find on the continent is that like, just to get people to buy my chairs, I need to also make the chairs. Then you have to be savvy in how the making of the chairs has a business model. So maybe you're making chairs that you sell to all the furniture stores, to your competitors as well. My feeling is that the question we want to answer, right, is that in Silicon Valley, the vibe is the like, focus on one thing, get awesome at it, then you can pivot and move around. That's kind of a common practice. But I think the question that we probably want to explore here is when is that not necessarily true? And I think it's those two things. So I guess what we're really just talking about is margins, right? Because I suppose in the US to acquire a customer is probably more expensive, right? Simultaneously, they are selling their products for more money, right? But it's a different kind of upfront expense here, at least in the case of Kasha, where rather than having to pay a $20 customer acquisition cost with Facebook ads, like they're having to build out an agent network. It looks a little bit different, but it may kind of actually be the same. 100%. I mean, it's the same in terms of um, framework. My question is just about what is the difference in margin? And then what is the scale you need to cover your fixed costs, yeah, right? What is the scale on that unit economics margin that you need to cover your fixed costs? Often I think that maths becomes challenging. When talking about scale, then that opens up all of these other questions, which we'll have to address later about the ease of scaling. It's easier to scale across the US than it is to scale to a comparable market size across Africa. And I think that's why diversification in product stream or revenue stream, whatever it might be, is about diversification. The core of the question that we're asking about specific to the continent is, number one, does that point come earlier in the journey? And number two, despite the increased risk, is there a necessity for diverse revenue streams just to make the maths work? Yeah. I suppose my hypothesis is that it does come earlier in the journey. Mm -hmm. Right. And so invariably the question becomes, does that then make it harder because you're having to do all of these things 
much sooner in the journey when you're still sort of proving the concepts out. Yeah, 100%. And Eric said it really nicely. How do you justify moving resources from your core thing that's working? You've kind of reached a product market fit. How do you justify moving resources away from that into another thing before you've kind of fully realized the upside of your core thing? And I think that's like one of the most difficult decisions that entrepreneurs have to make like on a daily basis on the continent, as opposed to like five years down the line. If you're US-based e-commerce company, like at a certain point you've sold to everyone that there is to sell to, right? And is that the natural point in which then they say, all right, maybe we should go find another market? Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't think that that expiration happens here, right? So you're faced with these really, it's not like the answer presents itself, right? Then you're faced with these really difficult strategic decisions around it's not a question of whether or not you should scale. It's a question of how you scale from a strategic perspective, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Amazon is in the business of building infrastructure. They're like a logistics company more than an e-commerce company now. Perhaps the conversation is actually not even that it's necessity or, you know, if we're saying a necessity, that kind of, in my view, applies like a necessary evil, but it's tremendous opportunity, but in particular to build out like this really competitive moat around your business. If you're building this infrastructure and if you can do it profitably and sustainably, then you're building a business that's hard to compete with and that's built to last. 100%. Amazon's actually a phenomenal example, right? Because they did those two things I was talking about, right? Number one, they had a hella massive market and built the infrastructure to support an existing market and integrated, um, what do you call it, vertically and horizontally actually but secondly they also built infrastructure that was profitable outside of their customer piece because they started saying hey any e-commerce or small business that wants to sell their stuff they built the marketplace right? right you can come here and have the infrastructure to sell stuff without having to build logistics part of your mm-hmm. business right so they did both and i think that's the challenge for us on the continent is if you're going to build the infrastructure, is there a market or is there people that will want to use your infrastructure that will make it profitable for you to build that or preferably both? We touched something interesting about the example when you go out, you build an agency network and then the agents are not exclusive to you. So someone else can just piggyback on that. Even a competitor, you've built out the infrastructure for someone else. So I do think there's a question around the kind of infrastructure you build, how you fund that kind of infrastructure, and then also how you actually make it operate as a moat. So it's not just about building the infrastructure, it's about protecting the infrastructure. Yeah, or or not. I mean, you can make the call that, hey, we need this infrastructure to exist. We have a better value proposition at the point of sale than anyone else. So we'll take the hit. It's so important just to understand the maths. One thing that Max said that was interesting as well was like, there's no way that they're going to take 100% market share, right? So again, I mean, maybe this is a question on like what the numbers say, but it sounded to me like they understood that there may be others who benefit from the infrastructure that they're building and they're okay with it, right? They also view, I mean, I think competition in particular in these sorts of new business, it's validating for them, right? So it makes it easier. The fact that there's competitors means that there's you know, presumably latent demand and it just brings more exposure to all of them. Yeah, for sure. The other infrastructure thing I was going to talk about was Hello Tractor. To the point about 
does the math work out? Like they do all of these things to build up the demand side of the farmers, but that's not commercialized in any way. Why do they do it? Because they need the demand on there to actually be able to like extract as much value out of the relationship for the benefit of their actual okay, customer, well, which the is the manufacturer. But it's interesting. They just tap into like existing hustlers. So it's almost the inverse. Ideal. So I don't know how much they've had to actually build their own infrastructure or if they've just leveraged existing relationships. It's probably a combination of both. I mean, I'm sure they're building and they've got training and they've definitely got to teach them how to sell on their behalf. But it's interesting. Like he explicitly said as well, like it's also the way that they scale is by leveraging these existing infrastructures. They can't be the one that goes down to the last mile because it's just not profitable and it's not feasible. And it was interesting, like they get a lot of grants, but they treat them as pass-through grants. So if there was somebody in their agent network that needed to build out some sort of infrastructure to support like their business, they would get the grant as a pass-through. And some of the donors, sometimes they're like, what do you mean? We give you this grant. Like we want you to be the one that goes and down and touches last mile. He says, no, like that's not possible. And it's actually not beneficial to our business. It just doesn't make sense from a numbers perspective. I love that. Such a good example of um, if the math doesn't work, then fund it accordingly. That's such a, a great way of thinking about it. It's like, yeah. okay, let's pass the grants on to people who are actually going to build the infrastructure and we're not taking a business model risk on something that does not make sense for us. And I guess no amount of grants or funding is going to make those numbers work. It's not a question about more money or access to capital. It's a question about being very, very selective and strategic in the money that they take, That's which smart. is like that. perhaps antithetical to the general narrative about access to funds. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Flip. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media at The Flip Africa. You can also join our newsletter by going on our website, theflip.africa. Tweet us, DM us, email us. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show. We'll see you next time.